Welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. I am delighted to have with me on the show today, Bob DeCook and Phil Clampett. Bob is the founder of the leadership consulting firm, Limitless, brilliant name for a consulting firm. Phil is the Blair Endowed Chair of Communication at the University of Wisconsin in Green Bay. Together, Bob and Phil have co-authored a new book that is being released today, if you're listening to the podcast on the day it comes out, Leading with Care in a Tough World. Bob and Phil, thank you and welcome to the show. Well, Maureen, thank you for having us. We're so excited. You have a great reputation yourself and with this podcast, we're honored to be here today. Thank you. So first, congratulations on your book launch. I realize that this takes hundreds, if not thousands of hours to create a high quality book. Yeah, writing books is always a labor of love. You know, we spend a lifetime uh, researching and doing these things and then you, you can't wait to share it with the world. So it's very exciting. And this really is the result of a lifetime worth of work, not just a thing you dreamt up last week. No, it is. I mean, I'm a practicing leader. I guess we're all practicing leaders, but I've come up in the business world from small leadership responsibilities to running large organizations. So on the practical side, I've been able to test out a lot of the things that we theorized and researched and studied about. And Phil is the academic, so. Yeah, my background is organizational communication, and I uh, just had a passion for studying the idea of how communication functions in an organization. When you tell somebody you're an organizational communication expert, a lot of people say, isn't that an oxymoron? And to a certain extent, it is. So that creates a lifetime of passion to make sure it isn't an oxymoron and then bring it together and show how you can communicate effectively in order to be a better leader. For me, books that leaders can apply seem so crucial rather than books where we talk about great theory and yet leaders don't see the link between theory and framework and what do I do on Monday morning. Yeah, I think that's right. You mentioned that in your intro, the beliefs and practices, and that's at the core of what this book is about. The beliefs that we outline in the book are the way leaders need to think about the principles of leading, and the practices are those things that take the beliefs and put them into action. You know, Marine, the, the interesting part about this book, in my view, was that it forced us both to kind of go back and read this huge stack of books that we had both accumulated in the field of leadership. And, and one of the books that we went back to was, of course, uh, Greenleaf's book about servant leadership. And that, that was published in 1970 and, and set off this way of discussion because it just changed the way in which people thought about leadership uh, in a lot of different ways. And, and it just it's really been lasting for about 50 years of kind of mining the, the, the philosophy of the approach of servant leadership. And so I really love what you had to say about applied because I have a passion for applying theories and applying ideas. And that was one of the things we noticed is a lot of servant leadership books were, hey, here's a great idea. But what do you do about it? And I think we challenge ourselves every day. We have to clarify the idea, but we also have to talk about the practices. And I think most of our robust discussions were about that interplay of those two concepts, if you will. By the way, I love the Greenleaf work, and I probably read it in the 80s, and it inspired me on part of my journey. 
in your title, the subtitle is Beyond Servant Leadership. So I'm curious what that means because I have some ideas of my own and I wonder how you see this. The positioning of the book Beyond Servant Leadership, obviously it was very intentional because it's the subtitle of the book. We prescribe and believe in all the things that Greenleaf talked about in his work and all the other people that wrote and studied that servant leadership area after he wrote the original essay. But we don't think it goes far enough, at least in today's world. Servant leadership and the focus on people is extremely important. The word caring leadership or leading with care, we think accelerates the idea of focusing on people, even beyond the idea of just serving them. When you care about them and you care about them deeply, the emotions and the interaction with them gets to a deeper level than the concept of serving them. Another part of the beyond part is that it's not only about deep caring about the people, but it's deep caring about the outcomes that are needed for the organization and the outcomes that are needed to motivate the people. And it's the outcomes and the focus on caring of people together that are important. The whole idea in this book is you need to get people motivated to be engaged deeply in their own work so they can contribute to the outcomes of the organization. And they need to appreciate those outcomes in a significant way and feel them in a significant way. So they're contributing every minute of every day to the organization and to their own development. And that's where the true Maslow said self-actualization, the self-actualization comes from. And that's why we say this book is positioned as beyond just the servant leadership concept. I want to unpack a couple things I heard you say, because you hit my primary concern when we talk about servant leadership, which is the leaders work for the team. And I would say the leaders work for the mission and the team is one part of the mission, but omitting the purpose of the organization, not that you would do this, but occasionally I hear people talk about servant leadership and they stop at, I serve my people, instead of, as you're talking about, being kind of a deliberately developmental organization, a results-oriented organization, and using care to get there. That's a brilliant packaging, and I think much more comprehensive than some of the interpretations that I hear. Well, Marie, we agree with you completely. I mean, that was kind of the, the tipping point for us in re-examining servant leadership. I mean, historically, of course, you know that the uh, emphasis and study of leadership was always focused on the leader. So when servant leadership comes across and it says, hey, there's other people involved in this relationship, we need to focus on that. And that's why it had such resonance at the time. And it still has resonance today. The two kind of arenas or streams that we tried to go after, and they touch on exactly what you said. The first one is a lot of times people will have the sentiments or the beliefs behind servant leadership, but they don't know how to practice it. We see people that want to be a servant leader but, and want to be a caring leader, but don't know how to do it. We're redefining it a bit by calling it caring, which brings to into focus the mission, as you said. But the second thing and it's a little more nefarious to use that word, is that we also see, and I've also observed, leaders who practice the skills of quote-unquote caring leadership or quote-unquote servant leadership, but they don't have the underlying sentiments. And then that leads to cynicism and lack of engagement because people say you really don't mean it. 
you're just pretending to do these types of things, but you're really not doing it. That emerged really after the servant leadership model started to come. And that's one of the reasons why we wanted to change the language from servant leadership to caring, caring both about the mission of the, of the team, but also about the individuals involved. I'd like to add on to that because the other part of the title, In a Tough World, is very important in this as well, because when you put those two things together, deep caring about the people, but deep caring about the mission of the organization, just speaking from a practitioner in executive roles, that is a tough combination to get both of them right and genuine in the minds of the people and in the minds of all the stakeholders in the company. It's a tough thing to do and we're doing it in a very tough and cynical environment these days. And it takes a special kind of engagement of people to make that all come together. I absolutely agree. It seems like often leaders will over-index either on, I care and I'm trying to get my people engaged and that's the path to success, or I'm over-indexed on results and under-indexed on people. And it is an incredibly delicate balance and probably a daily balance to navigate both of those. Absolutely right. And I think there's another word that we could introduce here that's an important one. I think sometimes leaders get off the track a little bit in that their sense of serving or sense of even caring is almost a sense of coddling people. And frankly, that's not the right idea because that's not what people who want to contribute want. They don't want to be coddled. They want to be appreciated. They want to be in the game with their leaders, with the organization. And that environment has nothing to do with coddling and appeasing. It has everything to do with deep engagement. That's a brilliant point to distinguish because as I sit in rooms with executives, there is this sentiment that either we need to give everyone a ping pong table and free sodas, or people don't really want to work hard. And yet a lot of the folks I interact with absolutely want meaning and purpose, and they want to work hard. It's really not about the sodas. And certainly I'll drink a free soda or a free cup of coffee. They don't necessarily want to turn it down. But the purpose for being at work is a much deeper interest in contributing meaningfully in the world. We have a name for it in the book, and you probably heard it as well, is the idea of toxic positivity. I can name five people right now in the last six months who have resigned from important organizations because of toxic positivity, where it's all happy talk, but there's no problem solving and there's no commitment to the organizational mission, if you will. They want to be engaged in the mission, and they don't just want people talking happy. And I mean, ping pong tables are nice. I like ping pong. I play all the time with my wife. But at the end of the day, people want meaningful work as well, that they feel like they're investing in something beyond themselves. This all gets at some of the original motivations in the months leading up to the pandemic, when we were beginning to research on this book, we started to look at a lot of statistics. And there's a lot of statistics out published about this same subject of employee engagement now. But the most compelling ones that we found were from a series of Gallup polls that were done pre-pandemic that pointed out three statistics that we think are just stunning and sad. It said only 15% of employees and organizations in the U.S. today, people are truly engaged. 15% truly engaged. The poll said 70% 
said they would work harder if they were more respected. And 70% said that they don't think that their leaders have the communication skills to lead. And if you just sit back and reflect on those three numbers, and you think about the performance and the contribution lost because of those numbers, if you could move them just a little bit in the right direction, which is what we're trying to do in this book, you would help not only engagement, but performance and contribution in a huge way. So there's a lot of low-hanging fruit here. It seems astounding that leadership has lost such confidence and such engagement from their people. So what was the number of engaged people again? 15% truly engaged. So that's at the high end of whatever scale of 1 to 10 or 1 to 5. It would be the 4s and 5s or the 8, 9s and 10s, but 15%. So if we could move that up just a little bit, productivity could increase by a third or a half. Absolutely. Productivity, contribution, all of those things. And it's not by providing ping pong tables and free sodas on Friday afternoon. It's by getting involved with people and get them truly juiced up about the mission of the organization, about the mission of their work, about leaders who are going to help them with their careers and help them develop as people. And that's what we mean by truly deeply engaging them. Because it's where we are right now, and you talk about in a tough world, you start the book with why leaders need to embrace uncertainty, and then I want to connect that back to the disengagement. We're in a different world than we were in a few years ago. We started the book with embracing uncertainty. Uh, we, we did research on it years ago, and it continues to be relevant today. And I've always been intrigued by the fact that Employees, even if they personally have problems embracing uncertainty, they want to work for organizations that embrace uncertainty, that are always moving the ball forward and looking for things. And so that was from an organizational standpoint why we started it there. From a human potential standpoint, there are three words that come out to me from a leader, discovery, humility, and potential. And I think the reason why you have to start with embracing uncertainty is it allows you to discover new things about other people, discover new ways to do a task to make it more effective. Uh, humility, because the leader doesn't always have the right answers. And you have to have humility to bring other people into the arena to collaborate with. And then third, potential. I think people don't even know their full potential until you say, look, let's try this. Let's embrace uncertainty. Let's figure out if we can make this happen. If it doesn't work, we'll go back and we'll try it again. So to me, it's almost foundational that great leaders embrace uncertainty. And there's a certain humility to it. And I'll just add one other thing, Maureen. My father was a physicist and a chemist, and he, he, he asked me to read Richard Feynman, and I remember reading about Richard Feynman. He says, the first principle in his book is you must not fool yourself, and you're the easiest person to fool. And I always took that to heart, because I always thought that meant I always have to come back and look at and evaluate my beliefs and see if I'm seeing this situation correctly. And so that's part of that kind of underlying philosophy of really uh, embracing uncertainty. And I think another additional aspect here is a leader's job isn't to have all the answers. That's not what a leader is meant to do. 
A leader's job is to bring people together who have multiple answers, who have multiple ideas, and create an environment where those ideas can be surfaced in a constructive way and debated. And then as a group, as a team, the leader has to orchestrate the dynamic to come to a conclusion about what's the best answer. And in order to do that, in order to manage that dynamic, whether it's a group of three or four, or whether it's a whole organization, the leader has to be able to embrace the uncertainty of all those different ideas until something is settled on, as opposed to an environment where you come into the room and the leader kind of prescribes what the answer is going to be and stifles out all the innovation that happens from everybody else who might have a better idea than the leader did in the first place. So on a practical basis, the embracing of uncertainty for a leader is extremely important. And it goes back to this value of humility. You know, beware of the person who thinks they have all the answers or are the smartest person in the room. One of our core mindsets, and the two of you and I are aligned completely on this, is the idea of professional humility. So we talk about collaboration and intellectual versatility, and you point to something that seems on the surface to be easy, and yet, at least I have found personally and with people I coach and work with, that it's hard to go in a room and say, I don't know, and let my ideas not be the good ones. Because I was raised in an era where the boss is supposed to have the right answers or some answers. The way of being that I don't expect of myself to be right is a, just a different way to show up. And it's counter to much of what I learned over the course of my career. Phil, do you want to share? Yeah, here's my perspective on that. I think when I'm working with executives or leaders on that, I try to shift the focus from what to how, that you don't have to have the what, what the right answer is, but you do have to provide leadership about how you're going to come to that answer. And the power that great leaders have, in my view, is not that they have the right what, but they have the right combination of skills and uh, ideas and approaches that their how gets them to the right what. And one of the things that Bob is enormously skilled at is bringing together groups of people in subtle ways. In fact, I had to observe them a lot in writing a piece of the book just to kind of step back and look at what those hows were. What was it that he was doing? And I think if you look at any great leader, uncovering those hows or those skills or hidden, uh, we call them the subtle practices, is really critical to having the confidence. And I think a leader can walk in and say, I don't have the right answer always, but I know how we're going to get there. And we're going to get there together, and we're going to get there following these principles and rules. And because of that, we'll end up with a better answer at the end. Maria, I would just add that one of the things you can do in this case is, I do it all the time with my faculty, is uh, I would say, look, uh, this is my idea. It may not be the best idea. When somebody else's idea comes out and it's better, I celebrate that their idea is better than mine. So I think celebrating somebody else's idea, particularly if you're in a leadership position, because people naturally want to please the leader, but to be able to say, hey, I don't always have the right answers. I may have the right process, but I'm not going to uh, always impose my ideas. We're going to come up with the best solution. Bob, why don't you share a little bit more on this since you're the expert in the the idea of convening and creating a process where 
people can shine. One of the chapters in the first part of the book is about values. You mentioned humility. We've mentioned humility. It's a hard thing to pull off all the time for all of us, for me. But every time I've found that myself as a leader have tried to be uh, intentional about it and had others be intentional about it, it brings out and blossoms ideas in other people that you would never find if you didn't have the humility to keep your mouth shut. That is a very important thing to learn. And it's in the values section because I once worked for a guy who ran his company who said, if you get the values right, everything else is easy. So if you're not humble, or if you can't be trusted, that's another value. Or if you're not transparent, those are three values. If you're not respectful, if you get those wrong, you have a lot of things to walk back. If you get those right, you start from a whole different place. And humility is a place that you have to get it right and start from the right place. You talked about toxic positivity, and I think this is one of the places where people espouse the values, and they may be fully well-intended, but failing to deliver really ends up being unfortunate because once I say I'm something, then people actually look for it and expect me to be that thing. Well, I think there are two possibilities when you get in this toxic positivity world. One is, and I've seen both, where somebody has the right sentiment to build up and encourage somebody, but doesn't know how to give feedback about how to improve or do problem solving. And then you've you also got leaders that are very, very skilled at making people feel good in the short term, but they're not solving the problems in the long term that undergird these. So you got a double-edged sword there in terms of where it can come from, and it manifests itself in something Literally, I've had employees tell me it's the culture is toxic positivity. We're happy about everything, but we shouldn't be. <laughs> I think that's a really good point, Phil, that it feels like you're supposed to always be falsely happy. Authenticity and transparency, as you pointed out, Bob, are really important characteristics. And sometimes we're not happy. And, you know, most people know it. The problem with that is that everybody feels it when it's not happening. And so it comes across as non-genuine, comes across as not real, comes off as a make-believe world. And that's what creates the cynicism and the skepticism by not being able to be transparent about what's really going on. Yeah, Maureen, to follow up on that a little bit, I, I was working with a leader once uh, coaching them and the, the employees that were reporting to her, she says all the right things, but she never does them. So they all retired. They all resigned, you know? Well, and back to your point, sometimes people truly intend to and have blind spots. And other people, I think, just think they can say whatever they want and assume people will not look beyond the words. So it is interesting, the distinction between part of the intro that we talked about is having the right intentions and the right skills, so someone who intends well, but just hasn't built the skills yet to have the difficult conversations. And in the book, what we try to do from the beliefs to the practices is create a sense that leaders need to be learning to be self-aware of how they're really coming across, how they're really being perceived. 
and have mechanisms that highlight when changes have to be made so that they can start to self-correct their own changes. As a matter of fact, in the second part of the book and the practices, the last page of each chapter is a set of self-assessment tools that allows people to rate on their own or ask their colleagues in a 360 kind of a way to rate how they're coming across on certain key issues with regard to communications or relationship building or any of the other practices in the second half of the book. And the self-awareness part is extremely important. One of the key premises is that effective leaders pair beliefs and skills. And it seems like this is a good example of where they do that pairing and how. We don't talk about all the ways in which you can pair the beliefs and skills because it would be uh, encyclopedic at that point. And so uh, what we do is just give a couple of examples to encourage people to, to start thinking about, do they have a core, you called it intentions, that's a good way to put it, intentions or they have a core beliefs that are going to support the right practices and vice versa. So like one of the core beliefs we have is about you can make progress in two ways. One is exploring and one is refining or doing something radical or something doing incremental. Well, when you're coaching somebody, which is a skill, sometimes you have to make a call when you're coaching them. Do they need a radical change or do they need an incremental change? So that's a way in which that belief hooks up with or links up with the practice of effective coaching. You know, there's not a book written that could tell you what are the signs when you do one or when you do the other. But having that in the back of your head that, hey, does this need radical change or does this need incremental change is a really important point for a coach to think about when you're trying to coach other people. And there are plenty of coaches out there, but I'm not sure they always think about that kind of distinction. And this gets to what I think Bob said earlier, the importance of self-awareness, not only for the coach, but for the leader reading your book, how did they start to build that calibration of, I think I'm doing well, but other people think I'm performing suboptimally? Because as long as my internal calibration is off, I will always index improperly on important topics. In some cases, small, minor change. In other cases, big misjudgment requiring transformation. But if I can't see it, then I will continue to misstep. And the point Phil made before about the Feynman reference of you're the easiest person to deceive yourself is really true. And so self-awareness becomes very important. So in these assessments at the end of the chapters, we often say, all right, what's your opinion of how you are on this value? But what would a third party say about how you are with regard to this value. And it's that third party assessment that's really the most important because that's how you're viewed by the outside world, in spite of how you think you are. And you oftentimes view yourself through your own intentions or what you think are your beliefs rather than viewing it through the practice. In fact, Bob and I both oftentimes start with new young leaders by asking them to read a book called Leadership and Self-Deception, which I'm sure you're very well aware of. And it gets back to this Feynman quote and uh, this whole idea of, of assessing where you're at and how you might be coming off, even though you don't intend to. So you put your finger on it with the word intention. The beliefs oftentimes seem like that's what they are. It seems like fall over or under 
And it's a consistent. So I work with people who have certainly lacked humility. They overestimate themselves and they fall on that side. I've also worked with people who underestimate consistently themselves. The imposter syndrome tends to be more often with women, but it is certainly not the bastion of women where there's actually too much humility. I was hired to work actually with a male leader because he was considered not, quote, leaderly. He was a little too humble and less directive than the organization thought he needed to be. And that points right to actually the second chapter in the book, which says caring leaders need to make progress. It gets back to the results, right? But you have to embrace uncertainty, but you also have to make progress. So if you find yourself one who is too humble or too sheepish or too reserved, you have a hard time moving the ball. And you have to move the ball. It's not what you do in moving the ball yourself. It's what you do in moving the ball through the people who you're leading. Because it's that collection of people, if they're juiced up in a way that they're excited and engaged, you'll move the ball much further with them together than you could ever move it yourself or with a subset of the team. I was hired to work with a C-level person who brilliant, brilliant woman, and fell into the trap that many people do that I'm going to just work hard and lead, but people didn't resonate with her. And she just kept picking up more and more of the work to get it done. So she was certainly focused on delivering results. She got that part. You know, with each human being, we have our own blind spots, or in some cases, a lack of comfort. So back to the either belief or skill, How do I get the people on my team to deliver what they need to deliver, especially COVID and post-COVID? Everybody's got stuff going on. It's either kids or ailing parents or I, I rarely talk to somebody who doesn't have some issue. And how do we balance, in this case, caring for, of course, I care about you don't have childcare and we want you to work and you want to work. How do we help you solve those problems with we're still paying you and running a company and there are things we require so that we can stay in business? It's a consistently tough equation to balance right now. It is. And it's, of course, a whole different world than we had pre-pandemic. You know, the whole dynamic of what amount of people need to be together in an office environment What amount of people can work remotely and what combination is possible of those in the same organization? For example, an organization that I used to be the president of, uh, the Bolt Company, is a construction services company. So it's hard to build things if your people who build things aren't out on a job site putting work in place. And so that creates a dynamic that You have office people who can work from home, but they say, well, the people in the field say, I need to be in the field. Why don't the office people need to be at their jobs and vice versa? So in the same company, you have opposite dynamics and you need to find balances for that in ways that all of those things can happen at the same time. And there are some accommodations that need to be made and some benefits that need to be given to keep people whole in the way they think about their life and their responsibilities at home and their responsibilities at the job. And it really is a tough balance. Yes, it is. And it's equally as tough because different people require different balance points. 
some people tolerate the uncertainty and the change in work environment better than others, and others need it one way or the other most of the time. So it is a very tough balance. This seems like a topic that will unfold over the next decade, probably, for different companies in different ways. I think it will. I think there'll be some major rethinking of how we do work that requires being at the place versus work that does not. And then when the work that does not require as much being in the workplace will be redefined in some pretty powerful ways. And they're going to be a very, very different kind of environment in terms of what we expect. And I think the notion of, for example, collaboration, there are the people that are all in one location is different than perhaps what we think of as collaboration for people who can work remotely at least part of the time. Uh, leaders are going to have to become very, very skilled at thinking about that. I kind of think of it like this, that when the NFL changed some of the uh, requirements through the negotiations with the union about the number of practice days, coaches had to change the way they, they taught and built skills up. And I think we're entering into that kind of arena because you have a limited number of days from an NFL standpoint to collaborate with the team and work with the team and work in a unit as opposed to the way it used to be in the NFL. So even those kind of changes, and they've learned to master that, I think we're going to have to do the same thing when it comes to the work world. So that brings us to a question then that you've talked about effective communication and collaboration throughout the book, and lots of people do that. How is your approach different than many of the other books that one might pick up or that one has already read that they should read yours too? Well, I mean, if you look at most of the books in the field of communication, they're how to be an effective speaker. <laughs> so most of them are published about how to be an effective speaker. And there's nothing wrong with that. I talk public address and we need to do that. But this is more about when we talk about collaboration, it's about the give and take between both when you're speaking and when you're listening. And I think what makes the book unique is we really tried to distill down some very specific and unusual, I guess, if you will, practices. Sure, you need to learn to speak well. For example, when it comes to collaboration, you got to get the meeting mechanics correct, which a lot of people don't. Uh, they don't even get the meeting mechanics correct, like when do you have an agenda? What's going to be on the agenda? But also you need to get in things that are specific, like documenting points of agreement and documenting points of disagreement and being comfortable with the fact that there are things we agree on, there are things we disagree on. So we try to think of it more as opposed to a balance of just all focused on the speaker, but we focus on the relationship. And so that kind of makes, I think, our view of collaboration and communication quite different. You're going to post a selection from the chapter on communication. I think you'd see that that reflects that kind of balance, too, about, I call it, the two channels all employees listen to, WIFO and WIFM. What's in it for the organization and what's in it for me as an employee? And I think that creates that balance as well. On the area of collaboration, Phil mentioned the points of agreement and the points of disagreement. In particular, it's important to get the environment of a communication session safe to bring up the points of disagreement because it gets back to this toxic positivity idea. If everybody is clapping for the things they all agree on and behind the scenes they're in their head, they're saying, well, 
I'm not so sure, or I've got a different point of view, and it's never safe to bring that up, that will never get the communication as complete as it should be and can be if the dissent isn't brought up and surfaced in a way that can be debated and talked about as compared to the things of points of agreement, because the final result will be much better if you can blend those two together for a better outcome. That's very important. How do you do that? I grew up in an environment where it wasn't necessarily safe to disagree. And as an adult had to build skills like using sentence stems, would you be open to a different point of view? And it's so rudimentary, but I did not feel safe saying I disagree with you. The leader's job in any kind of a communication session is to bring those dissenting points of view and the agreeing points of view to the surface. So in the book, in the chapter on communications, we talk about some of the subtle and visible practices necessary to do that. So if, Maureen, if you're the leader in that team and you're seeing people start to talk about, well, this is my idea or this is another idea, but you see people who are silent, that's generally the first indication that there's something else going on. So the leader has to take that and draw out the opinions of those who are silent, sometimes even make the point and say, it's safe here. This is a safe room to bring those concepts up. And we're going to talk about them until we come to some kind of consensus. So the leader has to play a leadership role in orchestrating the conversation to surface both so that it doesn't look like they're siding one way or the other until the team brings the concepts together. Yeah, I also think, Maureen, that I kind of, again, go back to this who versus what. This is a time where who gets off the table and what becomes predominant. So you're not disagreeing with me or Joe or Sally or whoever. You're disagreeing or you have a different point of view on on what? And you asked about earlier about, you know, what's one of the things that's unique about the communication collaboration in this book that's different than all the other. We have an entire chapter focused on how to manage the pushback conversation. You know, that's a very difficult conversation to have. And what you're outlining and what you're asking about is literally, how do you encourage the right kind of pushback, not just short term, which is easy to do, but long term, where there's a robust feeling of debate and a robust feeling of positive engagement on ideas and differing points of view. And I think that is a skill that we have not really talked about very much in the leadership literature. I know in my field, they haven't, we haven't talked about it very much. And yet we need to learn to, to manage it and manage those conversations in a really positive way because pushback can be valuable. If you don't think it can be, then you really probably haven't embraced some of the principles we talked about at the beginning or intentions of embracing uncertainty. I mean, generally pushback can easily end up in an argument or a disagreement to polarize points of view. And the leader has to make sure that doesn't happen. The pushback needs to be done in a way that you can benefit from the point that is being made and, and use it for the betterment of the outcome in the long run. And we talk about that in, in a chapter in the book. 
You know, one of my favorite books, this is in the Wayback Machine as well, is David Bohm's book on dialogue. The idea of circular dialogue, and, and you're shaking your head, Phil, so I assume you, you have read it and probably used it significantly. For people like me who were uncomfortable expressing a different point of view, the idea that everyone in the room, and I know it takes longer and, and people are imagining one of Dante's rings of hell, probably, <laughs> that everyone has to speak, but on contentious issues... There are times when hearing everyone's point of view is valuable. And what I found interesting was, one, I was able to change my perspective after hearing from people a couple of times, and I actually forgot why I disagreed. I changed my mind just hearing from folks. And it was okay to say, I agree with Bob, and I didn't have to elaborate a whole lot. So it wasn't as painful. But on contentious issues, it was useful. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's a quote, I really don't remember where it came from, but I often use it. And it has to do with something you mentioned, it takes time to surface those conversations. And to people on the front end of those conversations, it seems like it takes too much time, we can get there faster. But the quote goes something like this, it says, in terms of time, you're going to pay me now with time, or you're going to pay me later. But if you pay me later, it's going to cost more. In other words, the dissent, the disagreement, the talking in the hallways, and the cleanup that has to be done later by not talking through the dissent in the first place is going to be far more debilitating and take far longer if you deal with it later than if you deal with it up front. I have to believe that your Gallup statistic about only 15% of employees are highly engaged is connected to where we invest conversation and are we investing it on difficult topics or are we investing it in status reporting? That's a really great point. That's a really great point. Totally agree with you. I mean, I think that's the real key. Now, the time management component of it is what types of things do we um, have to or it's really important to have collaboration on because it's going to take more time to entertain those point of views and there may be other things that we do not so i think it's really important and maureen you mentioned something that's really important in my view the leader has to acknowledge when um, he or she has changed their mind and i think that it sends an enormously powerful signal of everybody in the room can be right and everybody in the room can be wrong but we need to we need to make sure we're making the best possible decision or you know, they have the best possible idea about what direction to go. Well, and how important for our followers to hear that they influenced us, right? That they're really valuable and their point of view is really valuable. And because we had this dialogue or conversation, the organization changed a decision or a direction there's not much that would be more engaging to me as an employee than to think I added value. You hit it right on the head. And that's, you know, the point that we're making in this book. If you can get at that level of deep care for people and care for outcomes and the engagement of their thinking, you don't get any better. But getting there is tough and you need to do things differently. If our current leadership models, and we've got a lot of them, 
and I've practiced them, you've practiced them, we've all practiced them, if they were really getting at these kinds of problems, would we really be seeing the kind of Gallup statistics that we're seeing? The answer is no, absolutely not. And so we need to change. We can't keep doing what we're doing. You talk about faux engagement. Let's go back to the engagement statistic. If only 15% are highly engaged, talk a little bit about faux engagement. What is it and what do you do about it? Faux engagement is when you pretend like you're engaged and you're really not. And I saw this firsthand uh, when uh, universities moved to teaching a lot of courses online. And when the first online courses happened, you got an engagement score that was uh, how many times you commented on somebody else's comment. And that was engagement. So if you said, good job or whatever, I interviewed a number of students afterwards, not mine, of course, but others. <laughs> and I said, did you really engage? No, no, I just had to pull, I had to get so many engagement to get my engagement score. It was faux. It was fake. I was just putting things down. I wasn't even paying attention was up there. Now we've gotten more sophisticated over time with that. Well, the same thing happens to a certain extent with uh, Zoom meetings where you have people clapping or what doing everything's, you know, whatever it is, maybe even doing a dialogue on the side. Meanwhile, they're working in, in far uh, on something that they consider far more important. So it's faux engagement at that point. So they're pretending to engage. And interestingly enough, the leader is fooling themselves as well because the leader thinks, well, everybody's engaged, everybody's on board. And then you end up this pay me now or pay me later type of situation where oh, I didn't know we were doing that. Well, we talked about it, you know, in that meeting, but you didn't hear it because you, were, you weren't engaged. So there's a lot of faux engagement that takes place. And technology, in some ways, is not always our friend on this, this type of thing. Because you can see in a real room or even the room we're in now where I can see your nonverbal and you can see ours, whether somebody's engaged or not. I think that is a real problem and maybe one of the reasons behind that statistic. There are other reasons, but I think that's one reason. It is my hypothesis. You hit on this earlier, Phil, that over time, we're going to find the right balance between in-person, working solo at home, and working jointly. Part of that's going to be us learning more about how to engage people remotely. Things like making sure we have cameras on, making sure that we construct conversations where people have to be engaged. And when I teach a class now, we do almost always breakout sessions with groups of three or four. And if the cameras are off, some percentage of the population will be multitasking because they've got pressing stuff to do. And to your point, I taught a class during the pandemic and we had one person come back and wonder why he didn't graduate because he didn't turn in any of his deliverables. <laughs> that would be a problem. Absolutely. And in the virtual environment, in a, a Zoom kind of a team meeting, the leader still has the same responsibility for drawing out the opinions of the silent people. And the nice thing about a Zoom meeting or electronic meeting like that is that everybody's face is on the screen if the camera is on and you can tell who's talking and who's not. And generally the silent ones have things on their mind or they're not as engaged and the leader has to take the initiative to question them and in a nice way and to draw them out so that they can express their own opinions of the subject and to keep that conversation going just as they would if they were in a conference room with those same people around the table. 
So the responsibilities of the leader are the same to create an environment where all ideas are legitimized. I agree. And as an introvert, sometimes I don't want to be called on. I want to listen and think and formulate an opinion before I speak. So I tend to not call on people because I think they're like me and they don't want to be called on. And I hope they're not asleep in the back of the room. That's what's one of the beauties of uh, the approach we're taking. Uh, We start about, if you're coaching one-on-one with those key people, we would learn that about you, Maureen. Mm -hmm. And we would, when we get in a larger group and you're interacting, you might interact quite differently. So we want to know you as a human being and what makes you comfortable. And so we would know how to, to, to manage that. That's why it's not just one of the, the, the practices of like coaching and not one of the practices like collaboration. I, th- I find it very hard to collaborate with people that I don't have a relationship with. And it doesn't have to necessarily be coaching, but ideally it would be. And then I would be able to know how to bring that out in a way that would respect, you know, your sense of wanting to think through it before you uh, say something. Which gets to the point you talked about earlier. I think uh, Bob mentioned the difference between nuance and what's visible and really knowing the person and dealing with the nuance. And I don't know that we really get to the nuance as often as we could. Those are the subtle things that are important when we talk about being a caring leader, because you have to be able to do those subtle things well. And in the current example that you give about about, uh, people who are introverts, leaders who I think care a lot, over time, it may not be in any one particular meeting, over time would get to know who those people are who are not as forthcoming with their ideas, and would slowly work on them, either in in a meeting like that or privately, to build enough confidence in their ability to bring an idea forward. And then the leader gets to be known as somebody who, well, Maureen isn't going to let all of these people be quiet all the time. And we know that, so we better start speaking. So your reputation as a leader starts to become one of, she wants participation. And she wants involvement. And it's okay to tell us what your opinion is. And it's safe in this room to do it. Even beyond that, in my small organization, I expect it. It's not just okay. If you don't share a point of view, then you should not be here. Because we're too small to have unnecessary people. And I try not to put people in situations where they're going to fail either. So it's not like I put them in front of big CEOs without being prepared. Yes. Can you share some of your favorite tools from the book? A couple of the practices that leaders might use to get excited about your work. Yeah. So in the coaching chapter, visible and subtle practices. And one of the ones that I really like is... Coaching requires interaction with a person individually. And uh, so you have to have a routine set up to speak with them and to talk to them about what's on their mind and what's on your mind. That's a visible practice. That's easy to think about because it's obvious, right? The not so obvious thing, A, an example of a subtle practice is where 
in those conversations, you become interested in their career, interested in their ideas about what they would like to do with their career, and help them think through, from your own perspective, how they can achieve some of those career milestones, and even help them get connected in an organization to meet people who can help them. That's a a conversation that you get to have. It's an honor to have that with people, to talk to them about that. But you have to have it. And what it does in a subtle way is expresses a deeper interest that you as a leader have in their career and their well-being. That does a lot to create the connection and the engagement. Thank you. And Phil, did you want to share one as well? I talked about one that I think is kind of on the cutting edge, and that's the whole idea of uh, managing the pushback conversation. And I really think that I, I, my own personal estimate is about only about 10 to 15 percent of, of leaders that I've seen manage that pushback conversation well in terms of gathering useful information and setting expectations about what will happen. In fact, we start the book off with a, an incident that I observed where somebody was soliciting input at a high level of a university and was not getting any input. Well, that was a direct result of his style of collaboration. And he didn't know how to manage the the pushback conversation and got frustrated. And he said at the end of that conversation, uh, after this group was administered, he said, why do I have to do all the thinking here? And I'm like, I know why, but I'm not going to tell you why right now. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and he does all the thinking because he doesn't know how to manage the pushback conversation. So I do think that learning to uh, manage that is really important. I'll give you another one if you want. The other one is the whole idea of uh, how to communicate effectively from an action point of view is trying to help people talk about something that doesn't get talked about in Greenleaf's book and a lot of other people's book, and that's talking about financial performance. And how do you talk about financial performance in a way that helps the individual in their own personal life, as well as the organization, and build into the person a deep understanding of the financial situation that, that they're being faced? This is particularly important in nonprofit organizations which tend to screen that information from the actual employees from time to time. So I found that was that was kind of a unique, unusual chapter that Bob had the lead on in terms of uh, creating some of the content, and we just you know worked through all that. So those are kind of cool, unusual, two unusual topics, pushback and uh, the financial management and talking about that in a way that's collaborative and communicative to the organization. And ties back then to the value of transparency. Yes. Beautiful. So as we come to a close, one, congratulations for your book being released today. Share with our listeners where they can get the book. Do you have a website? Where can they learn more about it? Sure. Well, we do have a website. The website is leadingwithcare.net. On the homepage, there are buttons to push to order the book as an individual book or in bulk. It's available on all of the book platforms, so they can order from wherever they like. And the website has a lot of good information about the book, as well as some videos under the resource tab that summarizes ideas in these chapters to get a preamble about what they're about to read. So it's quite a nice website. Brilliant. Thank you. And are you both on LinkedIn? Yes, we are. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) 
Thank you. I assume that some listeners might want to read the book and reach out to you as the authors and give you feedback. You made the, the LinkedIn the business read of the week, I think I saw this week. Is that right? Thank you. We did. And it is because of brilliant content like yours that we continue to do that. So I hope that your sharing of your chapter and the video and the interview lands you in the top articles to read as well. Absolutely. Let's do it together. (laughs) Collaboratively. So thank you to our listeners as well. We do this for you. For daily tidbits from us and our guests, be sure to follow us at the Innovative Leadership Institute on LinkedIn. I'm very proud of our media team who creates brilliant and funny posts each day now. So follow us as the Institute on LinkedIn. And thank you both Bob and Phil for being brilliant guests and for the really important work you're doing on teaching leaders in this tough world. Thank you, Maureen. It's been a pleasure to be with you today. Thank you.